Amen. I recently made my wife watch a documentary series with me. Uh, it was just a few episodes, but it was a documentary on a man known as Mark Hoffman. Uh, does that ring any bells for anybody? Mark Hoffman is a notorious and very accomplished forger um, in American history. He's thought to be one of the most accomplished forgers in history. He created a lot of documents um, that even to today, it's not known how many historic documents are thought to be credible and are actually forgeries of his because we just don't know. But it's thought to be a lot of them. Um, and they go from anything from like um, some of our founding father's signatures on things to all kinds of stuff. But in particular, um, he liked, uh, because he grew up in a family that was Mormon, um, and, and then he, he actually became atheistic as a teenager, but he didn't share that with anybody. And so he kind of played the role of being a Mormon. And then he started to take advantage of things. And so he actually created many documents related to the history of the foundation of the Latter-day Saints movement. And so um, this includes, um, probably most notoriously, the Salamander Letter. And so the Salamander Letter is that in, uh, in Mormon belief, um, which is not Christian, but in Mormon belief, um, they, they believe that Joseph Smith, this individual, received this revelation. An angel Moroni met with him and led him to these golden tablets, and he translated that, and that became the Book of Mormon. And so um, what this guy did, Matt Hoffman, is he forged a document and had experts authenticate it. Like, they were actually, they were convinced this was real, and this document actually called into question the account of this angel Moroni revealing this, and instead, it was a magical white salamander who revealed this. And so, this convinced so many people that in the Mormon church, they actually accepted this, and like, were shifting doctrine and all this kind of stuff, and then later they find out um, this guy, it's a hoax, um, it culminates in him planting a few bombs. Um, two of them go off and kill a couple of people, and then one of them goes off in his own car, and that makes him a suspect, and he's arrested. And, and so it's just insane. Um, but I share all that to say, like, that's pretty terrifying, that by the millions, people can be deceived by something, and something as crucial as their faith. Like, what they're placing, all of eternity at stake on these documents, and to be convinced of something that is not true, um, that's, that's crazy. And so I, I want to say, like, we put a lot of stock in this. Like, if there is one thing that defines us as a church that I hope the world sees, like, we love each other, but we love each other as an outgrowth of this, of the Word of God, of the Bible. And so every week we preach directly from the Bible, and, and we hope to never do anything other than that. Like, if, if we put our foundation, anything else other than the word of God, it is our greatest authority. Like, we are building on shaky ground. Or in Jesus' own language, you're building your life on sand. And that's not a good idea. The wind is going to come, like, fitting that it's storming outside, uh, and all that, the rain falls, it's gonna wash away. We want a solid foundation, and the word of God is a solid foundation. So we will, we will only build on that. But we have to ask the question, can we trust it? Like, we're going to put that much emphasis on the word of God. Can we actually trust it? And our culture, um, the, the, the weight of culture is saying, no, you cannot. That's this just ancient book of antiquity that is so irrelevant to today. And all of a sudden, all these accusations leveled against the word of God. But we believe that it is active. It is living. And it is just as true today and will be true forevermore as it was when it was originally written. And so, um, but it still begs this question, okay? So you ready to jump back into Mark? We're actually concluding it today. Excited? Ah, this changes everything. Here we go. We are in Mark chapter 16, um, starting in verse 9. It says, 
Early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. Yet when they heard that he was alive and had been and seen by her, they did not believe it. After this, he appeared in a different form to two of them walking on their way into the country, and they went and reported to the rest who did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. So the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the accompanying signs. And it ends. I want you to turn back. If you're looking at your physical copy of scripture or digital, go back to verse nine. And look just above the start of verse nine or scroll up to look just above it, do you see a note there? It says something to the effect of some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. What? <laughs> so where does it end? Does it end with verse 8, where we stopped last week? Or does it end with verse 20? And actually, it's even more complicated than that. Um, there are at least two other alternatives to where there could be another verse or couple verses between verse 8 and 9, or in substitute of 9 through 20. Like, why are there variants of this? So now all of what I started with, like, can we trust this? Like, wait a second, <laughs> why is that in my Bible? That, does it end with verse 8? Does it end with verse 20? What is the deal here? How do I know if I can trust this? And so I want to speak for just a few moments to this idea of inspiration. Can you trust this? Okay, can you trust the word of God? And yes, you can. You can trust the word of God. The inspiration of scripture, or inspiration itself, that term is a term that we use to, to help us to understand how we receive the word of God. And so this is what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God. And so the source of scripture is God, that he inspires it. And so he's working through these human authors, but it is God himself speaking through them. So this is beautiful, this is profound. This is what 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says. It says, above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, men wrote this. In fact, it's about 40-something authors that are attributed with writing these words, but it wasn't actually them alone writing it. It was the Spirit inspiring this, writing through They're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so that creates this beautiful complexity that like, in the word of God, we can hear the voice of these different men and their personalities coming through that, but it is God himself and his sovereignty speaking through them, carrying them through, and so we can trust it. We can trust this. And I'll give you a quick list of reasons, and this is not exhaustive, 
um, but, but just some that, that really mean a lot to me and I hope can resonate with you, uh, reasons that we can trust the inspired scriptures. Um, one is that we genuinely hear his voice and we encounter him in his word. And we know it brought saving faith in us. If any of you are in Christ, if you have salvation, it is because the word of God brought this faith to life in you. That Paul talks about this in Romans, that faith comes by hearing the message about Christ, that this gospel proclaimed to us from the word of God is what brings about faith. We genuinely hear his voice. First uh, Peter 1.23 says it like this, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That this brings life the inspired word of God, so we can trust it because we see that it brought life in us. And we also know that Jesus affirmed the scriptures. And so if Jesus could predict his own death and then die as he predicted and then be resurrected as he predicted, I'm gonna believe him. And so if you have encountered Jesus, you know him personally, and he affirmed the scriptures, then we should probably go with what he said. And he affirmed all of the scriptures. He quoted portions of the Old Testament and he would attribute it to the Spirit saying such. Um, the next one is that the prophecies are beautifully fulfilled in Christ. You have hundreds of prophecies given in the Old Testament, and then you see years and years and years, decades or millennia later, where Christ beautifully fulfills every bit of it. And so how could that possibly come about? Except that there is a sovereign God providentially pulling all this together, giving us a future foretelling of this is what is to come about and then making it happen. This is trustworthy. And the next one, if you just want to think very logically, nothing has disproven the scriptures in spite of the many claims that it makes and the claims that many have made against it. There's a reason that it's still debated because no one has proven it wrong. In fact, you look at archaeology and so much and it's actually reaffirming all the claims of scripture. And it's beautiful. And, and it still requires faith. Let's, let's, not, let's not pretend like it doesn't. You cannot empirically prove everything in the word of God. Um, but where we see any kind of confusion, it's a lack on our part. Because nothing has disproven it. We can trust it. And that does not mean it's easy. I have many, many questions. And I hope you do too. But we can trust it. And we should submit to it. Now, I want you to see the beautiful gift that the word of God is to us. That the very word of God, our Father, ruler, creator of heaven and earth, that he wants to speak to us and he has done so beautifully through the collected books that we call scripture, the Bible. And this is such a gift. And so the question now is, well, back to that portion of Mark. Is that actually part of the inspired word of God? And, and, and I want to address this because I know like for me, that creates a lot of tension. I want to know, like, what is the deal there? And so I want to present a possible solution to this, uh, this Markin challenge for you. Um, and, and so uh, to ask the question, what is the most likely ending of Mark? What was the original ending? And so uh, when I say the original ending, and, and we go back to how that little note in there said, some manuscripts end with this, um, the reason we have this tension is that we don't have what are called the autographs or originals. We don't have the original book of Mark anywhere. Nobody has that. Um, the, the paper used back then would not last for very long, actually. 
Uh, the, so what we have are copies of the originals, but as you get copies, there become variants to where somebody may copy it this way and somebody adds word here and there and suddenly you get all these variants. And I want you to know we can trust because when we see thousands and thousands of copies and most of them are beautifully in alignment and there are a few that are like, tender, like that's kind of different, which one are we going to go with? Logically, we're going to go with the one that is most often repeated because that's going to be the correct one. And so um, that's what we're seeing here. There are different manuscripts, but the earliest tend to not have those last passages, 9 through 20. And so again, logically thinking, which is more likely to be true, the ones that were closer to the original or the latter ones? And so if we look at it in that way, the oldest manuscripts would make us think that it ends at verse 8. Um, you also look at it linguistically, and I know this is a little bit of geeking out. We're going somewhere. Stick with me. Um, the Greek that is used by Mark in writing this gospel originally, it shifts, like very noticeably. The, the word use and the grammar, all of that shifts quite a bit, ending at verse 8 and gets kind of a new flavor for 9 through 20. And so that would make us think, eh, it probably wasn't Mark who wrote that. Um, but we don't know. What I want you to know is 9 through 20 have largely been included in the Bibles throughout the centuries now. And why is that? Because maybe it's part of it. I honestly don't know. Uh, it, a lot of evidence points that it's probably not, but what is good and comforting is to know that nothing in 9 through 20 actually changes our doctrine. So nothing in that is going to create huge problems for us if we read it in context and we understand it in light of the rest of Scripture. Um, so uh, think about this, the accompanying signs. They're going, to be, they're going to be able to handle these snakes and not die. They're going to be able to drink poison and not die. They're going to speak in other tongues. They're going to heal people and all this stuff. Um, I, let me be honest with you. I have not done any of those things. I personally have not been able to do any of those things. I would love to, but it hasn't happened. Does that mean that I'm not a believer? I have to question that. Jesus, believers will do this. Followers will do this. And so if we look at it in context, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the apostles as we know them. And then we think again in context that this book would start to circulate during the time of Acts. And we used our first year as a church to go through the book of Acts and everything he listed there happens in the book of Acts. That this stuff has happened for believers. And so we can't take that and say, well, that applies to every believer. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you can't handle a snake, get bitten by a poisonous snake and live, then uh, you weren't a believer. That's not what it is saying. But he's saying these things have happened. Um, so uh, let's understand that. And then we have to consider why would someone add these verses? And so again, this is something for, I, for us to, to wrestle with, but consider the reason that Mark would have left it at verse eight. If Mark had decided, all right, resurrection Sunday, these ladies show up, there's an angel waiting there, the tomb is empty, and the angel is like, hey, go on ahead, you need to tell Peter and the others that he's going to meet him in Galilee, just like he said, go tell them, and what do they do? You remember last week? They're terrified. <laughs> they run away and say nothing to anyone. Is that the last line of the Gospel of Mark? I think it might be, and it might be intentional. Like, because think about the beauty of that, that he leaves it on such a tense note. He shifts the question to the reader in doing that. Like, why would you end it there? <laughs> because now the reader has to say, well, what would I do? What am I going to do with this? What? <laughs> why are you running away saying nothing? What, we got to tell people about this. What is going on? It's almost like, 
Having encountered Jesus in this gospel and watching these ladies run away from it, it forces the question now on us, what are you going to do with this? Have you encountered Jesus? What are you going to do now? He's alive. Everything he said, it's coming to pass. He's alive. He was dead, and now he is alive. What are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do with that? Like, I think that's beautiful for Mark to just say, like, all right, what now? What are you going to do? Could it be that that tension was so effective that later scribes are like, we just can't leave it like that. <laughs> and so they're reading these other gospels and, and Luke writing in Acts 1 about the, the ascension and everything. They're like, well, we know what he said. Let's just put it in there to kind of like resolve some of the tension because everything that's in there is just what they've taken from other gospels and writings. Like, okay, well, may, maybe that is what it is. Again, I want to be honest with you. We don't know. But what is beautiful, even if we include 9 through 20, is Mark, like, Jesus is back on the earth for 40 days, according to Luke in Acts 1. For 40 days, he's appearing to them after the resurrection before he ascends back to heaven. And so all of that and the insanity of what it would be like to be with the risen Jesus. And Mark decides, eh, we'll throw a quick nod at it. It seems like this is very intentional. Very intentional. And so he's pulling it together. Say, like, look, if you look at verse 15, Jesus talking, he said, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And we know from the other gospels and from Acts, this is what Jesus said, like, this is now your mission. We call it the great commission. This is what you do in response to all that I have done. Now you live for my glory. You go tell the world this good news. Everyone, everywhere you go, to the ends of the earth, every nation, you want to hear this, and we want to see them baptized, expressing their faith in God, and we want to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is the natural reaction to encountering Jesus, is to now be about his mission, to live for him, to be on fire for God about this good news that we want the whole world to know. And so now, listen, I want to do that for you now. Like, I hope you've been tracking with us as a church. We've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, and you should have concluded that this morning. Like, now, having encountered Jesus for three, four months now, we've been exploring the life of Jesus and how Mark is kind of unashamedly, like, this is who he is. Like, he doesn't kind of sugarcoat things. He's like, this is him. He can be offensive. He can be crazy radical. He can be gloriously gracious. What a friend, but such authority and power. This is God, the Son, who has come to save us in love for you, the friend of sinners. That he's coming to turn everything on its head. The sovereign, omnipotent one to die at the hands of his own creation and say, look, I have power over even death. Now I have won victory over your sin. It's all paid for over death. The last enemy I've already conquered. And now I'm inviting you into life with me forevermore. Joy, not saved from, but saved to. To be with me, to be with Jesus. And I want you to feel that tension. What do you do with that? If you have encountered the beauty of the risen Son of God, If you know Jesus, the Savior, the one who has come to save us, to rescue us, to free us, to forgive us, and lead us into life forevermore with him, 
where the day is coming when he will personally, with nails in his hands, wipe away the tears from our eyes. He'll say, death will be no more. There will be no more mourning. The former things have all passed away. And I'll just live in the fullness and joy, the delight of God. Have you encountered him? And do you see the beauty of him, this glorious king? And now what do you do in response to encountering him? What are you going to do with this? If Jesus has saved you, if you call yourself a believer, a follower, a Christian, what are you going to do with this good news? Will you just say, you know, Sundays, that's cool, we'll celebrate. And I'll give a nod, yeah, I should read my Bible. Forgot to do that today, I gotta get back on that. And all the shame and everything. Will you live like that? Or will you see the beauty of the relationship he has invited you into and now how he vertically has saved you and says, now the overflow of my love for you, vertically to you, let it just pour out horizontally to this world. Will you see that this changes everything means this changes everything everything. It's not just a little part of our life that it changes. It changes everything about the way that we see things, the way that we do things, the way that we find and make sense of who we are. It changes everything when we encounter Jesus, every bit of it. And so, look, I just want to challenge you. Like, let's stop compartmentalizing church and faith. Your faith, Christian, is not for an hour and a half on Sunday morning plus maybe another hour and a half on a Monday or whatever day that you meet with a home group or a 30-minute conversation here with a discipline practicing partner. No, it's everything. This is now life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. But to live now is for him, for his glory. It's to see this changes everything. I, I, I wrestle so much with, in my own life, how busy I am. And as a workaholic, like, I I am such an achievement-driven person. I want to accomplish things. I want to knock it out. I want to get things done. And it excites me when I can check something off the list and I can look back and say, I did that. Like, that's what drives me. And it's an idol, how busy I make myself. And I think culturally, it's absurd. We have this kind of demonic stronghold on us of how we just make our schedules and our lives so busy. Like, where is time to do anything that really matters? And if we actually just stop, I said, I'm just going to sit here. Uh, later this afternoon, I'm walking through an exercise with our pastors called Making a Rule of Life. And, I, and I, part of my rule of life that I'm cultivating is I, I want to have these significant breaks between everything I do every day to just stop and pray and listen. And so much of me wants to say, you're wasting time. You better get back to work, boy. How crazy is that? This is exactly what I was made to do. And this is my call as a pastor, is to spend an absurd amount of time just studying the word and praying for you. But we want to be busy. And so look, fight that. Like, denounce it in the name of Christ that we do not have to be so busy. You need to have time. Make time and see that it's not just about crafting and carving out some time for God. It's seeing that this changes everything. So it reorients all of what we're doing. Say, now it's all about Christ. So keep doing sports. Keep doing your job. Keep pursuing relationships. But now do everything to the glory of God. But slow down in doing that and be intentional about it. Man, this, this mission that he has given us that is purely logically our response to encountering Christ 
it requires sacrifice. It's going to require the sacrifice of your time. Are you willing to give up some of your time for the sake of the kingdom of God, for his church, to be about his mission, to encounter him and be changed? It's going to cost you. And so it's going to cost you time, and it's going to cost you also some, some real sacrifice in your individualism. To, to give up that everything is about me and my comfort and what I want and all this stuff is to see that, no, this is about the world. And when Christ modeled this in this beautiful paradigm, that, no, like, to actually find life is to lose it. Like, for the sake of others, for me to give up of myself, to sacrifice, and then find joy in life and doing that together. And church, let's be a loving community. This was our vision from the beginning. First John 4 uh, yeah, starting in verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Oh, let's be a church that loves each other. That's going to sacrifice some time. It's going to sacrifice some individualism that we love. But I want to say, like, uh, be encouraged. We are postured for this. I'm going to share some really dark stats with you really quick. Um, but no, like, this excites me. Uh, Gallup released a study this last month that showed the American church membership has fallen below a majority for the first time as of 2020. And so it's released last month, but this study culminated in early 2020, pulling together all this data. And so now imagine, on top of that, Barna released a study about halfway through last year that said about one-third of Christians had walked away from the church and were saying, probably not coming back. And so this number, for the first time in American history, the majority is no longer associated with a place of faith. And that's not just church, that's a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. For the first time in American history, the majority are not related to one now. And then you have this pandemic, and by the thousands, if not millions, people are walking away from the church and saying, ah, I kind of done with that. And so I'm curious, what is the real number now? And so all these people leaving, 47% is all that is left as of last year. And empirical data from these surveys, these studies, belonging to a church, synagogue, or mosque. And so I want to say, the model of church that was this attractional production is not going to cut it. And look, we want to do well. Like, we want the gathering to be beautiful. We want to do well to the glory of God. We want things to be nice. Like, we're not saying we want things to be awful and just strip everything out. Like, no, God loves art. Like, go back and read the Old Testament and, and the way that he prescribed how to create the, the tabernacle and everything. Like, he wanted art and all kinds of beautiful stuff. He loves art. God is not some grouchy old person who's like, no, no, cut it all out. No. But the, the idea of just making something fancy and attracting people to it like a Sunday morning, that's not going to cut it. And this is beautiful. I love Sunday mornings, and we're always going to have an emphasis on, like, this is very important for the church, as it has been throughout history. But what we have to see is this changes everything, so it has to go beyond Sunday morning. And so the church moving forward has to realize discipleship, accomplishing this mission, living a life of worship that is honoring to God, has got to go beyond Sunday morning. It's life. And that's why we want to invite you in constantly. Be part of a home group. The model from the early church in Acts was they met together in the temple and in their homes daily. That you come together for corporate worship, but you're living as the church daily in each other's homes. That means, again, I, hospitality. I've got to let you in. You've got to let me in. We have to be a part of each other's lives. We have to sacrifice some time and actually be about loving each other. 
That's why we want every one of you to be in a discipline practicing partnership, to find at least one other person that for 30 minutes a week, you can have a conversation about whatever our discipline is for the month so that you can have an intentional conversation and grow together in the faith because you're not meant to live in isolation. And we offer equipping classes that Alex just finished the doctrine class where we want you to have a greater understanding of the doctrine that the scriptures lay out for us, what we believe, why we believe it. I'm launching this men's group on Tuesday nights where we're gonna jump into some different theology. And, and I just wanna invite you, like, let's disciple each other. Let's, let's do this. But it cannot just be Sunday morning. See, this changes everything. But what is gonna lead to this? me announcing things from the stage, Reggie announcing things, any of our pastors, sending emails, social media, all that stuff, it's not gonna convince you. What's gonna convince you is encountering Jesus. And so you encounter him, and you don't walk away unchanged. But then, Christian, your first calling, mine as a pastor, yours, wherever you are, whatever your role, all of us, our first ministry is to just love Jesus more. Like the airplane's going down, they always tell you like, put on your own oxygen mask before you help someone else. You need to encounter Jesus and keep encountering Jesus. In the language of Jesus, John 15 says, abide in me or remain in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we don't just encounter Jesus once and walk away like, wow, that changed everything. I think I'm gonna go this way. No, now you walk with Jesus. Because then you don't walk away. You come with him. And now walking with him, and he's constantly, oh, can I just show you this? And hey, you thought I loved you? Well, let, me, let, me, let me sink that into your heart a little more, Kevin. Like, encounter him daily. All of our doing must be out of our being. I, I don't remember who started this, but I love it. Like, you are not a human doing. You are a human being. Be with him fall in love with him, encounter him. It changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, God, we're so thankful for your grace. And as we conclude this book, God, I, I ask in humility um, that while there are questions that we have and we don't fully understand, um, we trust your word. And so Spirit, um, Jesus told us that you would lead and guide us to truth. And so we ask for that. And however we land on the ending of this book, God, we see that you change things. And so we want to encounter you and be about your glory, not our own. So God, help us to be a sacrificial church, loving you above all, but then out of an overflow of that, to love each other, to love others, to extend outward, to be about your mission. As we call this Mission Sunday, God, to be reminded that you told us what we are now to do in light of this revelation. We're to share your goodness. God, to, to serve this world. To be agents of justice and mercy. But God, to loudly proclaim your gospel, your good news that you have come to save. Thank you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.